Tech Talk. Tech Talk with Jess Kelly. This is News Talk. Hello and welcome to Tech Talk. This is Jess Kelly with you here on News Talk. Coming up over the next hour, the Twitter Musk saga continues. We'll take a deep dive into the impact of paid verification, media labels and knee-jerk reactions. Plus, Revolut is continuing to expand its portfolio of services. Is now the time to make the move from a traditional bank? As always, you can email the show techtalk at newstalk.com or you'll find me on Instagram at jesskellynt. Uh, But let's jump into the world of Elon Musk. And before you roll your eyes or sigh or do whatever it is that many people do when we talk about Elon Musk, I just want to set out my stall because I think it's important not to dismiss this week's activities in particular as yet another Elonism. There's been a lot that we haven't spoken about because it has seemed frivolous and so on. But this week, yet again, it was, I suppose, crystallized in my mind that since his takeover of the company, we've seen his actions impact people, media, politics and the wider society. This week he spoke to BBC reporter James Clayton in a wide-ranging interview and we gained a bit of insight into Musk's thinking and approach to certain decisions over the last few months. Here is Mr Musk explaining how the business only had four months to live when he came on board. In in rough numbers, uh, revenue dropped from four and a half billion to three. uh, and um, expenses went from four and a half to six, creating a $3 billion negative cash flow situation um, and Twitter having a billion dollars in the bank. That's four months to live. So unless drastic action was taken immediately, this company's going to die and be owned well, by the banks. Let, let's talk about that drastic action because almost immediately um, you sacked a lot of Twitter workers. Um, yeah. And, and, and look, I, I spoke to them, it's very easy to speak to them. Uh, when it happened. And, and, and the way they said, mm-hmm. pretty much everyone said, is, is that it felt quite haphazard. It was. And it felt a little bit uncaring. Do you, do you, do you, uh, do I wouldn't you... say uncaring. The, 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 you know, the issue is like, uh, the, the company's either going to go bankrupt, uh, or if, if we do not cut costs immediately. Um, this is not a, a caring, uncaring situation. It's like, if the whole ship sinks, then nobody's got a job. Right. Yeah. But... but a lot of people just lost their jobs like that, um, and 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 they weren't. What, they didn't what, even know they would. They they'd lost their jobs often. They just okay. were just they were just so frozen out of you, their accounts. What would you do? Well, you might want to give someone some notice. I mean, you might. It's, by the way, I, I'm not running Twitter, but, I know, but this is this is the criticism, and this is what actual this is what I staff members but, say. A but, little bit of notice, uh, you know. No, I understand. You have four months to live. 120 days. In 120 days, you're dead. So how? So what do you want to do? How much are you worth? I don't know. But you, I mean, we're talking about around the two hundred billion dollar mark. I mean, it's not no. quite. You're framing it in in a way that that you know that it had a, had a few months to live. You're quite a rich man. Um, I sold a, a lot of Tesla stock to close this deal. I did not want to sell the Tesla stock. That was Elon Musk speaking to the BBC earlier this week. I'm joined now by Stephen O'Leary of Olitico. Stephen, I spoke to you way back when it looked like Musk might buy Twitter, although he could still back out. 
Obviously, since then, we've had the sale, we've had job cuts, we've had policy changes, we've had more job cuts, we've had paid verification, we've had account labels and even a dog as the logo. Uh, before we jump into the happenings of this week, just give me your overall sense of the last few months. I do remember our conversation about this and I do actually remember my prediction as well. And it's probably a lesson in making sure that you don't go too strong on what you predict will happen because people are hard to predict and Musk is definitely very hard to predict. We thought at the time that really the Tesla situation would ensure that he treated Twitter with a little bit of care and that he couldn't go absolutely all out on it because the potential damage to Tesla and Tesla's reputation was too high and that ultimately that would uh, that would shape his behavior that hasn't really transpired now there is an argument that the kind of gung-ho mass layoff huge change approach that really was the hallmark of his first weeks and months in the business has slowed down mm -hmm. but as we've seen in the last couple of weeks and even the last couple of days he's still very much in control. And despite changes in management and structure, if he wants to change something within Twitter, at the moment, it feels he can do it with minutes notice. And that leads to some erratic decision making. Yeah. And whatever about him as a leader, Twitter as a platform is suffering the consequences. And there are so many businesses whose KPIs or whose business models, entire business models revolve around Twitter. So if a person who's eccentric and who has thoughts and chats with people online and then takes knee-jerk reactions on the back of those can make alterations to a platform that we're using as key drivers for our businesses, I, I mean, it's not a good situation for anybody. It's not good, no. And it makes planning hard. Without question. So anyone who is heavily reliant on Twitter as a network definitely has a huge degree of uncertainty at the moment, because really from week to week, from day to day, from hour to hour, in some situations, things can change. But the network has survived and there were a lot of kind of people who speculated at the very start of this that potentially Twitter wouldn't last, maybe it wouldn't last the end of the week or the end of the month back in 2022 and yet it has and in fact based on advertising we haven't seen the mass exodus of advertisers that was also feared or the mass exodus of users now look there have been some high profile accounts that have decided to leave the network or the platform but by and large if you look at twitter today for all the verification and the blue tick and the different models and the changes really twitter is pretty much the same as it was a year ago in lots of cases. So there has been some change and we certainly know that the model is changing. And obviously there has been a huge cost cutting exercise undertaken and possibly the effects of that are a little bit more medium to long term. It's maybe a little bit too early to know really how that will actually play out. But for now, Twitter in lots of ways actually looks very similar to what it did a year ago. But I remember talking to you years ago now at this stage uh, when Hillary Clinton announced her candidacy in, in the presidency, right? She did that on Twitter and it was before anywhere else. There wasn't a press briefing or anything like that. She announced it on Twitter and that was seen as a huge move because although Obama had used Twitter so effectively during his campaign and his presidency, 
it was showing that maybe older demographics were understanding the value of this platform. And over time, it had been maybe not necessarily a trusted news source, but it was where people who are trusted went to share news and updates of relevance. The change that I've seen as a journalist on Twitter in recent times is that I believe nothing because there are verified accounts operating under names of influential people. But when you actually scratch the surface, they're not that actual person. They're verified because they paid $8 or whatever it is. The famous example that I cited a few weeks ago was Monica Lewinsky. So Monica Lewinsky, from her verified Twitter account, shared a screenshot of a man who's operating a verified account with the name Monica Lewinsky. And it's not that they have the same name, it's just that he's a shitstirrer, for want of a better phrase. So that, to me, has been the biggest shift. That although we were cautious before about believing what you read on Twitter... Now, even after I verify it on two sources, I'm looking for a third and fourth because I simply can't believe anything on the platform anymore. So I appreciate as a journalist the need to be really, really careful when it comes to using the platform. But the argument I would make is that that existed prior to Musk taking over. And look, there's no doubting the fact that people can now buy verification that there are going to be examples when people claim to be one person and turn out to be somebody else. And it does get more complicated because those accounts can have a blue tick next to them. And it used to be the case previously that if you saw the blue tick, you could take a lot of um, comfort as a journalist or in other professions that the content you were consuming was from an official or um, an authority that, that was who they purported to be. That has changed. However, Those accounts that claim to be someone else and don't clearly display that they are a parody are that they are definitely not the person. So those accounts that are looking to kind of trick you and impersonate other accounts, they don't last long. Twitter does have a system to stop that. And whatever about the Monica Lewinsky example, when the verification process launched initially, There were some high profile U.S. companies who got impersonated and actually some of the commentary that came out of accounts um, that claimed to be these companies actually affected market and share prices. And that was a really, really serious um, result. So Twitter has seen this. It would appear it has learned from some of its early mistakes. Um, And when I say early mistakes, I mean early Musk era mistakes. And it is making changes. But I do think that the onus will always be on the media in particular to treat it very carefully. I certainly don't think, though, that people in positions of power are going to stop using it because the reality is there isn't another network that deals with breaking news in the way that Twitter does. Like, just think about the networks that exist as competitors, right? It's not Facebook. It's not Instagram. It's not TikTok. It's not LinkedIn. It's not YouTube. There isn't another network that comes close to being the place everybody goes when something happens live. And it's not just the news, right? So if you're a golf fan and you were following the Masters, you didn't go to any of those other social networks to see how everyone was reacting to McElroy's performance or Ram winning. You went to Twitter because that's where the reaction was occurring. Or you take pop culture. So without any spoilers, and I'll say nothing specific, but if you follow Succession, mm-hmm. very, very interesting episode uh, mm-hmm. released this week. Lots of conversation that occurred on the back of it. But the spike in conversation took place on Twitter 
there wasn't really conversation on Instagram. It didn't really get talked about on Facebook in the same way. Certainly there was clips shared on TikTok, but that's really, really different. The absolute spike as essentially an entire market sat down to watch a TV program at the same time. That all happened on Twitter. And the power, that power that the network holds in a way is much bigger than Musk. It's much bigger than how the organization is run. So if they can keep the lights on and they can ensure that the platform actually stands up, I don't see someone else or another network stepping in and and really replicating that experience in any meaningful way. Yeah, I've seen a number of people share, you know, Substack, potentially Substack Notes as being an alternative or maybe Meta will enter the fray with something Twitter-esque. But I guess the thing that I'm concerned about is like we already are dealing with a hell of a lot of misinformation and disinformation and so on. And, you know, obviously it's my job and I wouldn't be good at my job if I didn't look to verify information, if I just ran with every tweet with a tick that I I, I saw. But the fear factor is, you know, the average individual who would have liked to think themselves being up on current affairs because they read Twitter or they follow influential journalists and so on. I do think the level of noise has gone through the roof and I think it's become harder for people to use or to identify legitimate sources of information versus illegitimate. Um, And I just wonder what the end game here is in terms of that fake news thing that we're all fed up talking about. So I agree. Uh, Misinformation and disinformation is a massive problem, not just on social networks, but more broadly. Um, And social networks are fairly central to it. Certainly they're central to the dissemination of that information. So actually spreading it and things going viral. And it's not helped when a system that had been used to provide an element of security, of safety, of verification is essentially altered massively, which is the step that, that Twitter took when it came to selling verification essentially to, to its users. So that does make things more difficult and it adds to the challenges that exist in, in tackling misinformation and disinformation. But we need to be careful too to remember that this is not unique to Twitter in any way. Um, there is a huge amount of conversation at the moment in relation to TikTok and its ownership and how it promotes content because you've got to remember that disinformation and misinformation is to do with accounts that impersonate other accounts. That's part of it, without question. But also it's down to how the networks decide to promote mm-hmm. or boost or show content to audiences and the routes that they can take those audiences on. And we're all, some are very aware of the stickiness of TikTok as a network, for example, and how that algorithm works and how you can find yourself going down a rabbit hole really quickly because it understands your behavior um, and can find essentially content that it knows you're going to, to stop and watch. That's just one other example of a social network that has come into question. You know, more broadly, um, ChatGPT and AI and other kind of topics at the moment are bringing up these huge questions for users around information and algorithms and how it's presented and what we can trust and what we can't. I mean, when ChatGPT launched, there was loads of excitement. You can ask it anything. And it had the answer essentially in ways that almost Google didn't have. This was this amazing piece of tech. And it is, and it has great potential. But equally, we learned very quickly that actually it kind of just makes things up a little bit. It guesses. There's a lot of guesswork that goes in. And so 
I think what this all comes back to is there's a greater onus now on individual users to educate themselves on how to look out for misinformation and disinformation and how to essentially figure out where the truth lies and probably really brings us back to more traditional media. It brings us to journalists. It brings us to reputable news organizations and the role they play and how central they've become. Because if you struggle to trust content that you see on a social network and you struggle maybe to trust content you see more broadly on the internet, well, we do know that the purveyors of truth and those who have to stand up for it are journalists and traditional media. So in a way, despite all these changes we're seeing, there's probably never been a time when that type of media, traditional media, has been more important. Yeah, that is an interesting point and indeed an important point. And I completely agree with you that this isn't just a Twitter problem. Before Musk entered the equation, there were, you know, a ton of issues, a ton of questions, a ton of hearings about the behaviours of different social media platforms. And that is something that we're all still trying to work out and get right. Um, there's still so much to talk through, but we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we'll continue this conversation and take a look at the fallout between Elon Musk and NPR, all because of a Twitter label. Stay tuned. Tech Talk with Jess Kelly. In terms of advertising, obviously it's, the Twitter's not a private company anymore, so we don't really know how, how, it's, how it's all going. Have all the advertisers come back? Uh, not all, but most. And, it, it, and you can see it for yourself on Twitter, even in the For You feed. Right. I mean, in the, sorry, following. In the following feed. Don't use For You because it sucks. Right. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Filled um, with hate speech, I'm told. Um, that's not what I said. Okay. Uh, well, why don't you use For You? What's wrong with it? Um, how is it going? Is, is Twitter in profit now? No, Twitter is uh, uh, rough. I'd say we're roughly break even at this point. And I think you've said before, you, you, see a, you see a world where you could be in profit. Is there a timeline on that, do you think? I mean, I, depending on how things go, if current trends continue, I think we could be profitable. Or, I mean, pro, pro, I say, to be more precise, we could be cash flow positive uh, this quarter if things keep going well. This quarter, as soon as that? I, I possibly, yeah. Wow. Um, and do you have a message for the advertiser? I mean, can you say which advertisers haven't come back? I think, I think almost all of them have, have either come back or said they're going to come back. There are very few exceptions. Can you say, say any of the exceptions? Um, I actually don't know of anyone who said definitively they're not coming back. They're, they're all sort of trending towards coming back. But there are some that just I haven't. Jump in, the water's warm, it's great. That's, that's your message to the, to the advertisers who haven't come back? Yeah, I mean, look, uh, you know, if, 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 if Disney feels comfortable um, advertising, you know, children's movies and Apple feels comfortable advertising iPhones, those are good indicators that Twitter is um, a good place to advertise. That's another snippet of the Elon Musk interview with the BBC earlier this week. And what I find really interesting is that this conversation happened around the same time that there was a public fallout going on between Elon Musk and NPR. Uh, Stephen O'Leary of Alitico is still with me. Stephen, let's talk about this spat with NPR because for those who don't know, this is National Public Radio in America. They have a ton of excellent content across news, music, culture and so on. But 
their main Twitter account was given a label under the Musk regime that they didn't like. They were saying that it was damaging and called into question their editorial independence. So they've decided to leave the platform. What did you make of this back and forth? And was either party in the right here? This was really interesting to watch. Your word regime is really interesting here too, because that's actually quite central to a lot of this uh, this specific conversation. So again, I think in, in terms of like brief background here, this, this kind of escalated very, very quickly as a story. It began with essentially NPR being labeled state-affiliated media. And the language here is really important because state-affiliated media is a label that Twitter has used historically for autocratic regimes. Mm -hmm. um, so think Russia, think China, where essentially the government plays this really central role in deciding what state-affiliated media publishes. So a good way of identifying this type of content content is that it's never critical of the government. So the government and their policies are never questioned um, on these outlets. There's never any criticism of key government or key individuals. And it's, you know, it's sometimes labeled propaganda. So Musk was challenged um, for putting this label um, by NPR. And so he he said, OK, I'll change it. And very quickly changed it to government funded media. Um, which NPR weren't really happy with either and decided, no, that's not what we want to be labeled as. That's not fair that only 1% of our funding comes from federal sources um, and that we're a private nonprofit, we're independent. Um, we And I, again, like they constantly criticize the government in the US. So the idea that the, the government has some sort of control over NPR is really hard to stand up if you look at the vast majority of their reporting, which calls into question lots of things that the government does. So then it kind of escalated a little further and the BBC got involved. And so Musk said, OK, I'll call you publicly funded media because there's a license fee. And if you go to the BBC Twitter account now, you go to NPR, you'll see government funded media. You go to the BBC, you'll see publicly funded media. But where this gets really complicated is NPR has 52 official accounts on Twitter. So it has their main account, but then it has 51 others for all the various politics, music, different divisions that are involved. The only one that's got government funded media on it is their main account. Similarly for the BBC, their main account actually doesn't have that many followers relatively. So I think I checked this morning and it was 2.2 million is the follower count that the BBC account has. And underneath it, it says publicly funded media. But if you go to the BBC breaking news account, which has got 52 million followers, so like 50 million more, there's no label. Mm -hmm. So Another part of this is just the way it's applied. You go to RTE, there's no label, despite the fact that there being a license fee uh, involved. So, you know, what we often see with this is that Musk can bring a level of pettiness when it comes to the way in which decisions are taken, or certainly it has a strong appearance of pettiness. And that's what it feels like happened here, uh, that this decision was taken on a bit of a whim and done purposely to annoy a certain cohort of users, our demographic, our audience. It had the desired effect. NPR have left Twitter. Uh, whether that's going to be permanent or not, yeah, I suppose we're yet to find out. But for 24 hours, they haven't been there. And, you know, in interviews that they gave on their own, uh, their own network, they talked about the importance of the other networks they're involved in. So Facebook being a key driver, YouTube, TikTok, 
uh, and actually making claims that Twitter was driving a relatively small percentage of traffic um, to their website and to their, their stations. So, look, it's clear there's a strong disagreement here. Um, there's a question as to how important that label is. It goes back to integrity, though, right? And it goes back to transparency. And like, if you're going to start putting labels on things, there has to be a clarity as to why one thing is one thing and another thing is that other thing. And I think that the examples that you just listed there between the BBC, RTE and so on, it just feels like it's being made up on the spot. And that all feeds into that uncertainty, that level of distrust and, you know, if I was a social media manager right now, I'd be thinking, oh, hang on a second, why like, are we placing too much value on this one source? Yes, we have lots of followers, but with all the changes that are going on with the algorithm, with, you know, people who pay for a blue tick getting boosted above people who don't pay for the blue tick, it just feels like a muddy puddle, as Peppa Pig would say. And it's not sure, I'm not sure it's one that I want to jump in anymore. Yeah, Peppa is always a good person to come back mm. to uh, in these situations for uh, for reference points. The puddle could not be any muddier. Um, and look, there's no, there again, there's no doubting. All the evidence shows that Musk is making this up as he goes along to an extent. And he's he's said this, you know, they want to move fast and break things. This, uh, this idea, and we, we see this, and that line has been used repeatedly by entrepreneurs uh, in the past, that this is how you... You affect change and twitter was long criticized for moving at a glacial speed when it mm-hmm. came to making any changes on the network in the past now this is clearly an overcorrection in terms of how fast things change and look there have been high profile things that have gone wrong musk does need the network to work so he talked in the interviews with npr and bbc recently about the fact that he expects uh the company to be cash flow positive and to be break even in terms of revenue um through this quarter um, which is interesting, um, you know, and, and probably important to the long term viability of the network. So it can't continue to be an absolute loss maker. Um, so there are interesting things happening there at the moment. There is no doubt that all of this does feed into uncertainty. What I would say about the the social media manager and maybe their questions as to whether or not they should be using the network. And obviously we have a bias here because we deal in data all day, every day. But our job is to look at how content performs on Twitter, on Facebook, on TikTok, LinkedIn, YouTube, right across the board, and also to listen to how the public talk and engage in those networks. And one thing that our data would suggest, looking at the broader spectrum of clients we work with is, engagement is still high on the network. People are still consuming a lot of content on the network. People are still very active on the network. There have been changes, but there are constantly changes in user behavior. So I think, If you're trying to make a business decision here around whether or not you should remain active on the platform, it needs to come down to measuring the effectiveness of the content you're publishing and whether that's doing a job for you, whatever that job may be. And the one thing is there is great data. There's great analytics. You can gain great insights. And that tells you how you're doing. But the one other major advantage Twitter has is that real-time pulse of how country, a cohort of fans, a community, a group feel. And it gives you that pulse like really no other network does. Nothing else comes close. And so for all its challenges, for all its problems, for all the things that Musk is breaking at the moment, I really find it hard, provided they can keep the lights on and make the business case work, 
to see Twitter going anywhere or any real significant um, competitor in the space of real-time breaking news and real-time events and sport and current entertainment really emerging. Okay, I'm going to put you on the spot now. So we made predictions last time. Uh, next time we talk, we'll book it in right now. Uh, will Musk still be in charge and will have will things have settled? I think Musk will have appointed a more formal management team by the time we next talk. Let's say we're going to talk in six months' time. I think there will be a more formal management structure at that at that point. I think Twitter will be in a good place by then. Um, certainly, that would be my hope. I, I I see a lot of the good in the network. I see a lot of the things that work well. We're absolutely aware of the disinformation and the misinformation and the harm. But we also see the incredible good, its ability to bring communities together um, and the positive effect that that can have. So I really hope it does um, continue and thrive. But I think my gut would say that within the next six months, the other businesses, whether that's SpaceX or Tesla or others that Musk is involved in, and particularly the rapidly evolving AI landscape. I think I would be really surprised given how ChatGPT and others have started to become a massive talking point and, and really appearing to become central to an awful lot of what we're going to do over the next couple of years. I would be really, really surprised if we didn't see Musk taking a fairly significant position on that industry in the next six to 12 months. So we have a new toy, basically. Yeah, and a toy that works with a lot of his other toys, right? Yeah. So. What we don't know is what role does, you know, the large language model play in a social network? How can that be integrated into Twitter? What does that make the network look like? How does that play or does it play any role in terms of Tesla or SpaceX? You know, there's so much happening, so much change in that space, and it is rapidly evolving to the point that there are new companies coming out by the dozen every day at the moment, showcasing what this type of computing power and this type of artificial intelligence can do. I think it's, you know, we don't really know what's coming six weeks down the road, never mind six months. But as I say, from from all of our experience of Musk to date and where he's wanted to be at the forefront of, you know, electric cars, of space, of social networks, I, I just don't see a way that he's not looking at artificial intelligence at the moment and the changes we've seen brought about from ChatGPT and others in the last kind of six months and saying to himself, that's where I need to be and that's where I want to be. Okay, I'm going to talk to you in October. We're going to play this interview back. We'll do a we'll do a listening party and we'll see uh, what happens. Uh, but for the moment, Stephen, thank you so much for joining us here on News Talk. Pleasure, Jess. Tech Talk with Jess Kelly. Welcome back to Tech Talk. I'm Sophia, an AI voice here on News Talk. In just a second, we'll hear about Revolut's latest addition to its portfolio. But first, earlier in the week, Minister Ashin Smith spoke to Newstalk Breakfast about the potential dangers that could arise from artificial intelligence if it falls into the hands of bad actors. 
it's able to not just reason, but also to empathize. It's really manipulative. And, um, you know, you can see that it's able to do things like pass a degree, pass the, the bar exam to become a lawyer, you know, this kind of thing. So it's, it's really become very clever, very quickly. And it could lead to a situation where you could be taken in romance frauds, for example, uh, or you're buying a car online and somebody tricks you into sending them money. And in the hands of the wrong person, uh, really, it's quite dangerous. And I think it's important that we let people know. There's no point in saying that we shouldn't even try to, to regulate AI. I think that the, the AI is owned mostly now by very large, well-funded public companies. We can regulate them. And we can also set laws for how it's used by people. But it is important to, um, to give people the information about the new threat that, is, that has emerged from very realistic simulations of human beings. That was Minister Austin Smith speaking to Newstalk Breakfast earlier in the week. Let me know what you think. Do we need regulation on this type of technology? How would it work and would you believe I was a real person if I called you up, looking for your personal data? Email techtalk at newstock.com or WhatsApp us now on 087-1400-106. I'll hand back to Jess for now. Okay. So even though I wrote that and I made it, I'm still slightly freaked out by it. Uh, That was Sophia, an AI-generated voice from a platform called Jenny. And it's one of the better voice simulators I've come across. But everything she said there, despite not being real, is true. There was talk this week about the fact that the National Cybersecurity Centre has been tasked with coming up with advice to protect the public from high-tech scams. We've spoken a lot on this programme about the likes of ChatGPT and other forms of artificial intelligence over the months and indeed years. But the sinister side of this is quite worrying. I don't want to overhype it and I don't think people should be freaked out as of yet. But we already have very sophisticated text, email and call scams. So what happens when those scams start to sound more human or their voices on the end of the phone sound and speak in a more natural way? I think we all need to be eyes wide open. And we do need rules and regulations around the use of this tech, whether it's something like hashtag AI on posts that are generated by artificial intelligence, or if there are methods of policing it to prevent it from becoming weaponized. Uh, I'd love to know your thoughts. As Sophia said, the email is techtalk at newstalk.com or you can message me on Instagram at jesskellynt. Uh, but we're going to move on now to Revolut because a few weeks ago with Derek Riley, we spoke about the fact that they're introducing car insurance and this week they announced they are launching joint accounts. They seem to be going from strength to strength. So is the time to move from a traditional bank to Revolut? What are the benefits and what are the risks? Dara Cassidy of Bonkers.ie joins me now. Uh, Dara, it's always great to have you on the show. Firstly, let's just talk through what exactly they launched this week. So it seems every week Revolut is announcing something new. It's kind of tough to keep up sometimes. Uh, But they've launched joint accounts. So up until recently or up until this announcement, um, they did have what they called vaults, which some people used as a joint account, but it wasn't quite a joint account. So it was a service that they were lacking. But now they have um, introduced it. you have to have the latest version of the app in order to get it. So just check that you have that downloaded. And it works pretty much just like another joint account would. Both people will have access to the money. 
you can use the account for things like shared bills. So whether your you know, husband and wife, boyfriend, girlfriend, or whatever the partnership may be, you can um, use this to better manage your finances. So it is coming as well, kind of hot on the heels of Revolut launching an Irish Iban, which um, a lot of people had been asking for because it did make using your Revolut account for your day-to-day banking a little bit more difficult because of Iban discrimination. So yeah, I mean, really Revolut now, I think, Jess, is becoming a real viable alternative to the main banks. Yeah, and that is the key point here, isn't it? You know, as we've spoken about many times, they seem to be addressing a lot of the pain points that a lot of younger people in particular feel when it comes to traditional banks. But the arrival of the Irish IBAN does seem to have been transformational. Just explain the significance of that and how that really does up the gear yet again when it comes to the pressure being put on the traditional banks. So up until recently, all Revolut customers had a Lithuanian IBAN. And before that, actually, we would have had a British IBAN. Uh, but then when Britain left, when the United Kingdom left the EU, they had to change that for various reasons. Now, it shouldn't have caused an issue, Jess, because we have what's called SEPA legislation, which means you should be able to go and live and work abroad in any other country in SEPA and um, use your own bank account and not care whether or not it was an Irish bank account or a French bank account or an Italian bank account or whatever the case may be. But that wasn't the case, unfortunately. And quite often people found it difficult when they were trying to set up direct debit or standing orders or sometimes even just get paid by their employer. They found that the Lithuanian IBAN, particularly those first two digits, which was IT, I think, um, instead of IE for Ireland, um, it, it just caused extra issues. And it was a real impediment to using Revolut for your main day-to-day bank and it's why I always would have had reservations although I really have to emphasize that shouldn't have been the case and Revolut shouldn't have had to transfer over to Irish IBANs because like I said it shouldn't make a difference but they did they have and it is great in the sense that it really does make using your Revolut account a lot easier you can use it for your main day-to-day banking needs and it's a real viable alternative as I said to the three main banks and um, obviously it, it, it's not perfect in the sense that it is an online only bank and some people particularly a slightly older generation may not like that there is sometimes issues around customer service um, so that is something to point out as well but you know it, the app is amazing there's so many great features on it they really are I think reinventing what we thought banking could do uh, and they were the first to introduce a lot of services that um, we didn't have here, even some, you know, some simple things sometimes, just like push notifications on your spending, um, you know, Fitbit Pay, uh, being able to temporarily block transactions, or at least they were among the first. So they've really, really kind of set the bar for what banking is, I think. Yeah, and it is exciting to see that change. But I know from talking to different people of different ages, and it's not all just one demographic but some people still do have reservations about the trust of putting say their month's salary in because I think the way a lot of us still and I know I do it myself I get paid into my traditional bank account and then I transfer a bit of spending money into my Revolut and I use it for my day-to-day transactions I know from talking to my friends and other people around the place that there is still that nervousness of ditching a traditional bank entirely are those uh, concerns founded or is it just that we're scared because there isn't a f- physical building on, a, on the local high street? 
good question. And yes and no. So the first issue, maybe I just would say quickly, is why we're at Revolut. So if you're a user of cash, it's not for you. Now, I hate cash. I was actually in a pub the other night and they only accepted cash. And it was just so inconvenient and it seemed so strange. Um, with Revolut, the cash limits are very, very small. So if you like to take out a few hundred euro in cash every month, it really isn't the account for you. The second issue is around the online element and the fact that you can't go into a branch if something goes wrong and i do get that with revolution i mean technically it, it, it now is a bank it it's covered by the deposit guarantee scheme so your money is as safe in revolution as it is in permanent tsb or bank of ireland the issue is around customer service and people sometimes getting locked out of their accounts Revolut does most of its work using AI and automation. And they would say that's one of the reasons why they're able to keep the fees so low. Although, mind you, they still really haven't made much for profit. So I, you could wonder whether or not that's the best strategy. But what happens when you use a lot of robots, I guess, is that sometimes the robots can't make the best decision, uh, at least not yet. And what often happens is for anti-money laundering reasons, Sometimes people's account gets flagged and incorrectly then their account gets blocked. And under anti-money laundering legislation, it's illegal for the bank to tell you that you're suspected of anti-money laundering legislation. So if you just got locked out, there was a strange transaction and the robot said, no, we think this is fraud. And you ring up and say, hang on, why is my account locked? Technically, Revolut isn't even allowed to tell you why it's locked or how long it might take to be unlocked. That causes a huge amount of frustration. And whereas if maybe it was AIB, Bank of Ireland or Permanent TSB, they have the human touch and they're able to look at the transaction and say, oh, yeah, that's normal. That's fine. And, you know, with Ireland being so small, I wouldn't be surprised if in some places down the country, they'd be like, oh, yeah, that's Jess. I know why that 500 euro or that 1000 euro went into the account. Like I said, that doesn't happen with the online banks. N26 has an issue with it as well. So you do hear of these horror stories. They are few and far between, but of people getting locked out of their account. So it's something, I guess, for people to be aware of. I mean, I wouldn't have all my money in there, I think. Not that it's going to go, but just in case maybe you did get locked out or at least having access to other money for a few weeks, I think is always a good idea, if that makes sense. Having savings mm -hmm. in another account, just in case you did get paid and something were to happen. And because if you pay as well for the free version, or if you don't pay, because they obviously have premium versions, the customer service is a chatbot and it can be very frustrating at times, particularly if it's an emergency and you're trying to get something unlocked quickly. It can be really frustrating when you can't talk to a human. You mentioned about fees there, and this is something that I'm quite interested in because I, I constantly see six quid a month going out of my traditional bank account for fees. And I see, you know, fees for my credit card and all that kind of stuff. Revolut's proposition was that, you know, there were either no fees or more affordable fees. But as you said, I don't know about how much money they're making. Do we anticipate the introduction of fees once they get a certain threshold of customer on? Or is the introduction of things like the car insurance and those portfolios a way to counter the fee-free banking? I think that is it. I think they're trying to, and this is what all banks do, keep their current account fees as cheap or even as free as possible. And then as they roll out more products, make money elsewhere. And um, They say they're going to, 
go into mortgages, which would be a huge game changer. Now, lending mortgages is a risky business, but that's where most of the profit is. So if they do go down that route, they will become a lot more profitable, hopefully. And then it should hopefully keep the main day-to-day bank account free. I mean, I, I think it probably will be kept largely free, but I just wouldn't be surprised if some fees had to come in eventually. I mean, we've already seen us with fees around commission for... Um, cryptocurrency and um, you used to have zero foreign exchange fees and then they pull in a 1000 euro limit and uh, it changed the markup slightly on foreign exchange fees at the weekend so they have brought in a few fees elsewhere that maybe mightn't seem quite so apparent but certainly their day-to-day banking fees are still free and they probably will stay free for the foreseeable future maybe forever at least the main ones but i just wouldn't be surprised if a few other kind of fees do begin to creep in because at the end of the day, they are a company. They're not a charity. They're out to make money. And they they made a profit last year, I think, of maybe around 100 million. But they were three months late submitting their sign-off for their accounts and the auditor had an issue with this. Uh, you, you know, people think Revolut is the future and it, 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 we're kind of always signing the debt knell for traditional banks. And I'm kind of like, well, in order to do that, you need to be profitable and really, really successful. And Revolut has the numbers, but doesn't actually have the profits at the moment. If you compare that to AIB and Bank of Ireland, they both made close to a billion euro, I think, last year, or they're going to this year. Whereas Revolut, as I said, it's making a pittance. So probably more fees are on the way. It would be just silly not to think so, but um, they'll, they'll probably make most of the money from loans and mortgages and things like car insurance. And I know that, you know, I, I'm often on it myself on Bonkers.ie. You guys do really comprehensive uh, comparisons and also a guide to different service providers. When it comes to the bank, is Revolut still an attractive offering when you look at the day-to-day banking fees in the traditional banks versus what Revolut offers? Absolutely. As long as you don't use cash. If you don't use cash and you tap and pay or use your phone, it's excellent value, particularly if you go with the standard account, which is pretty much free for all of your day to day banking. They have a charge of either one euro or two percent. It's confusing on any money over 200 euro a month that you withdraw. So if you can keep your cash within 200 euro and you're only allowed to make five <laughs> withdrawals so if you make six withdrawals and even if it's below 200 euro you'll still be charged something so as i said it's quite complicated uh, but basically if you don't like using a huge amount of cash they are really really good value aib particularly poor value and um, you could spend maybe seven eight euro a month on your current account with AIB if you're kind of a medium heavy account user who has lots of direct debits going in and out whereas with Revolut it could be free with permanent GSB I think it's quite good as well six euro goes out at the start but then I get like a five euro refund as it were because you get 10 cent back every time you use your card in store or online so it kind of works out as a net one euro and I think that's good and of course Permanent GSP has a branch. Uh, but I mean, N26 as well is pretty good. Um, similar proposition to Revolut. So it is, no, it, it, it's a good bank account. I mean, and really, really cheap. Uh, and now they have joint current accounts, Irish IBANs, personal loans. They even launched a credit card around three or four weeks ago. They really are doing everything and anything you'd expect of a bank. The only thing is just around the customer service and as 
you said, yes, just those kind of maybe horror stories of people maybe getting logged out, people being afraid, should they put all of their wages in? But um, they you know, Revolut has a lot of customers in Ireland. They've over 2 million, they've around 30 million customers around the world. So of course, there's going to be the odd hiccup, let's say. Mm-hmm. But um, they are doing their best to improve it. Brilliant stuff. Well, that was informative as always. Dara Cassidy of Bonkers.ie. Thanks so much for joining us here on News Talk. Thanks, Jess. And that's it from me this week. If you missed any of the show, you can listen back in full on the News Talk app powered by GoLoud. I'll be back with Shane and Kira on Monday's News Talk Breakfast. But in the meantime, have a great weekend.